You know, I stress to my people, if they never fail at something, they're not working hard enough. And that holds true with those ventures that we look at for growing our business. This is episode 340 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Christopher has been out on the road again. This time he was in D.C. at a launch event for Next Century City's new toolkit on broadband readiness for local communities. While he was there, he spoke with Don Patton from Oregon's Monmouth Independence Network, a regional fiber-to-the-home network that serves the two cities of Independence and Monmouth. In the past, the network has faced some challenges, but in recent years, the situation has changed, and now they've turned it around with a take rate higher than 80%. Don and Christopher discussed some of the problems that Minot has endured and the choices that led to those problems. Don describes the changes that they implemented to overcome those challenges, including a shift in their approach from utility to competitiveness. Don also talks about the need to push the envelope to keep up improvements in rural connectivity and gets into the details of their current expansion into Dallas. Now here's Christopher with Don Patton from the Monmouth Independence Network. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, sitting across from a chuckling general manager of MyNet in Oregon, Don Patton. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Chris. And I was not chuckling at you. I was chuckling with you because of your enthusiasm. I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, uh, there's actually um, one of the, the per- people that's listened to every episode, um, uh, Travis, um, Travis Carter, who runs U.S. Internet in Minneapolis. Okay. Um, his wife is supremely annoyed by hearing that every Wednesday morning. Apparently. <laughs> so I ham it up a little bit for, for both just, of them. Just for her. <laughs> That's right. So um, let's get started, and let me ask you, what is MyNet? MyNet is actually an acronym for Monmouth Independence Networks. Monmouth and Independence are two adjoining communities in uh, the Willamette Valley of, of Oregon. Which, I have to admit, the first time I saw that and pronounced it, I got laughed at for Williamette. Or Wilhelminette, <laughs> something like that. Actually, you know, the, the hint that we give non-Oregonians is it's Willamette, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the most beautiful places on the planet. We're about 45 minutes from the coast. We're about 15 minutes from the state capital of Salem. And we're about 45 minutes from the grand city of Portland. And MyNet was one of the early networks. Um, I, I, I'm sure you know the history. I know you haven't been there since the beginning of it. But how did it come to be that the Twin Cities worked together on this? Well, you know, it's actually amazing that these two cities were able to pull together on a joint project because it's like many cities. Uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul have a similar uh, kind of a Hatfields and McCoy mm-hmm. feud going on on just about everything. And that one is clearly better than the other. Oh, absolutely. You know, very <laughs> competitive and not always, uh, at least in the political arena, not always in a real nice fashion either. Uh, but in this particular instance, they saw a joint need. They both had the same need, and it's it's the traditional reason why they got started. Uh, they realized that they were going to be overlooked for broadband. Uh, they realized uh, Western Oregon University sits in Monmouth, and they realized that they were going to be on the have-not side of the of the formula and said that's not acceptable. The communities did reach out to the incumbents and said, uh, what can we do jointly with you uh, to bring broadband into our communities? And they got the traditional answer. Uh, we'll tell you when broadband's available. We'll tell you when you need it. And they said, that's not going to fly here, and chose to go ahead and build their own network. 
And that was, is it 2005? Uh, that was almost 12 years ago now, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's been quite a ways. Now, what, what I find interesting and, and what I want to talk about, there's several interesting things to talk about with you, but the thing that I really want to get out of you <laughs> is the secret sauce of how you came into a network that, from what I could tell from afar, was succeeding, but barely. It was it was not a pretty picture in terms of repaying the debt over time. Um, there was some struggles to get the take rate up. And, and after you had been there for a while, all of a sudden it seemed like things were going very well. And so I'm curious if you can just walk us through um, how it was when you got there and, and what you did. Well, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll try to. Um, and there is no secret sauce, uh, first of all. It, it's merely rolling up your sleeves and, and not if you had become what you tried to replace, to unwind that and definitely no longer become what you're replacing. Uh, and that was certainly the tr case with MyNet. MyNet had uh, some significant debt issues because the cities chose to borrow money to pay for the original borrowing to build the network, which was a very poor business decision on the city's part, and they're very open to admitting that, but that's what they did. I'm sorry, so just to understand what that, what that means, so borrowing money to build the network? They initially borrowed money to build the network, and then they borrowed money to operate the network, okay. from which they were making the debt payments to the original bonds from. Right. And that's just not a good business model in any stretch or sense of the... Uh, and let's, let's talk about why for a second. One of my understandings is, is that if you're... If you need to borrow money, typically it's hard to borrow money. <laughs> so <laughs> probably it's coming with a higher interest rate. I mean, is that one of the issues? Or is it just that there's less pressure on you to make those operating expenses pay for themselves? The latter. Okay. Because cities do enjoy the ability to borrow money at very attractive rates. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the issue then, is that um, they didn't have the right incentives to really dig into their business model to make sure it could stand on its own two feet? Well, you know, I think the original, the very original business model uh, probably applied, uh, but the, the operation was poorly managed, quite frankly, from the get-go. Uh, as with so many municipal projects, there was too many political hands in the uh, in in the rest, in, in the kitchen. There were too many uh, uh, government employees attempting to operate a business uh, that a, a government certainly has and should invest in doing it in some form of partnership. But they got absolutely no business operating it. Mm -hmm. And one of the very first things that I had to do was wrestle away uh, the operating influences from the cities and from the political aspects of the cities. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we often see is a marketing challenge. That's that in, in particular, cities, I mean, cities do a, a fine job operating electric utilities, water sure utilities, do. and things like that. One of the things that sets them apart is marketing. And so I'm curious if, if that was one of the issues or if you can elaborate just a little bit more on where the, the challenge was. I mean, procurement and, and, and personnel issues can be challenging. I would say this, that there was the mentality that if we build it, they will come. Mm -hmm. And that has never worked anywhere ever. Uh, and that was the case with this operation as well. Uh, plus, uh, there was the expectation that it could be operated like a municipal uh, uh, utility. And quite frankly, we can't because we compete with Charter. We compete with CenturyLink. We compete with both the DISH networks. 
Right. I remember that from a, a, one of the talks you gave. You don't like calling this utility. This is one of the, the sort of the downfalls of the English language, I think. The term utility means something different to everybody. And so a lot of the arguments sort of go past each other. But, but for your point of view, you really have to understand that you're in a competitive environment. Absolutely. It has to be operated exactly like in a, a competitive environment. Because, in fact, it is. Mm -hmm. And so what does that mean? Does that mean um, having fewer staff than might be convenient? Um, you know, what, what sort of, what, what's one of the differences? Well, a utility is merely a monopoly. If you want that service, you have to go to that monopoly source to get it. Uh, in our instance, uh, we're not the only source to get the products that we vend. So the difference between operating as a as utility, certainly that's the experience from a, the consumer's point of view. But if you're running the operation, how do you run it differently? Is it is it that you just can't afford? Because um, this is one of the things I'm curious about. Municipal networks that have struggled, in my experience, one of the things is they have too many people, which drives their operating costs too high relative to their revenues. Well, I think there's a, a natural tendency to have built-in inefficiencies in a, in a utility. And that has to do with uh, government process. And until that process is changed, it's almost required law. Mm -hmm. But the difference between a for-profit business and a utility, a utility has the ability to set their pricing based upon their expenses. And a for-profit business has to uh, earn, the earn the money, earn the margin that they can obtain, uh, and do so against their competitors' pricing. Mm -hmm. But quite frankly, uh, one of the things, and, and you're correct, one of the things that I had to correct when I got out there was a bloated staff, an inefficient staff, and make the operation as absolutely as efficient as we could possibly make it and do it very, very quickly. Because my net was on the slippery slope. This actually reminds me a lot of the Chattanooga story. It's something that they did before they got into the telecom business. They significantly reduced their FTE staff, and they improved on every single metric that they were tracking. And so it's this same sort of culture shift away from the idea of a utility and into a more nimble, you know, um, competitive enterprise. Exactly. And, and until our most recent expansion Endeavor, we have been operating with uh, roughly about, we've been able to bring the customer count up. Very, I'm very proud to say we've been able to bring the customer penetration rate up to in excess of 85%. And that's that puts you in like the top 5% of municipal broadband from what I understand of take oh, rates. In, indeed it does. But far more importantly, we're able to hang on to it. We mm -hmm. didn't just reach it by lowering prices or throwing some uh, you know shiny special out on the marketplace, uh, we just earned it the hard way with good old customer service and and making sure that we were talking to everybody that could possibly our, be our customer. But the point I wanted to make was, as far as efficiencies, is we operate, uh, we support somewhere between 56 and 5,800 customers in our legacy markets of, Minot, of Monmouth and Independence. Uh, for the longest time, we did that with 14 FTEs full-time employee equivalents. In our industry, that is tremendously <laughs> low. That's, you know, there, there's companies uh, even in Oregon that have municipal, uh, with m municipal roots that have, you know, that customer count that are needing 50 to 60 employees mm -hmm. to do that same. So the secret sauce, uh, you haven't said it officially, is you kidnapped all of the children in the town and told their parents they had to sign up for your network before they could see them again, right? Well, we, yes, we did do that. <laughs> no. 
the secret sauce is this, is we, we applied business acumen in everything that we did. So that also, I mean, I can see that getting to 70, 75%, an excess of 85%. Is this a matter of hometown pride that then emerged to put you over the top? Well, we certainly tried to take advantage of it if, if in fact, we could uh, uh, take advantage of it. If, if in fact, there, you know, people felt guilty not supporting their hometown entity. Right. But, you know, that's very, very difficult to quantify. Even as, as many questions as we ask every customer as to why they're there to become our customer or why they're there to leave us as a customer, some things are just impossible to quantify, and that's very hard to do. But if we were able to do it, we were certainly trying. I think, actually, I think we closed out December at 87.3% penetration rate. And we, keep, we have absolutely current counts on available uh, passings. So we know that our penetration rate is extremely accurate. But one thing to remember is that with the other 12 or 13 percent that, that we don't have available to us, by and large, uh, we really don't want them. I mean, we'll, we'll continue to try to get them, but most of them have been our customers at one time. Mm-hmm. In fact, they're probably still in our system. They just happen to be in our accounts receivable system because they forgot to pay their bill. Sure. And that's why we don't really want them back. Right. That's a hard case. And, you know, there's also another 4, 5, 6, 7% of the, uh, of the available customers are always going to be changing, chasing that next shiny object. Mm-hmm. They'll be our customers sometimes. Sometimes they won't be. Mm-hmm. I interviewed Doug Dawson last year, and he had said that you guys were one of the things you were doing was recruiting farmers to the area. Now you're you're in an area that's um, you're outside the state capital, but it's still fairly rural. It is, um, and and so one of the things you're trying to do is to is to use your system to see what you can do on the on the farm. From what I understand, one of the things that we are trying to do uh, is to not and you know at today's meetings. Uh, today's uh, symposium, we're talking a lot about thinking out of, outside of the box uh, to make rural broadband f- more successful. And quite frankly, thinking out of the box isn't going to get it done. you got to blow the box up. Okay. There can be no <laughs> boundaries even in your rearview mirrors. And we're, we're looking at doing anything and everything that we can possibly do uh, to not only uh, attract new potential customers into our system or to attract uh, uh, businesses in, into the communities as well. If that includes uh, putting uh, mobile devices on, on uh, hops and uh, wine grape trucks and bringing them through the community so we can uh, have them ping through our system to report the, 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 the quality and condition of those crops, we're trying it. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I, I hail originally from South Dakota, and we had a governor that was notorious for saying, just do so, even if it's wrong, go do something. Sure. And we, MyNet, have that attitude in spades. You know, I stress to my people, if they never fail at something, they're not working hard enough. And that holds true with those ventures that we look at for growing our business. So speaking of growing your business, um, we'll talk a little bit about what you're doing in Dallas, and that's Dallas, Oregon, not Oregon, Dallas, right. home to the worst team in the NFC East, by my opinion, <laughs> <laughs> as, a, as an Eagles fan. So um, so you're in Dallas. It's a, it's a unique approach, and, and um, for people, we'll talk about it, but also Doug Dawson wrote about it in his blog, Pots and Pans, um, so there's a little more detail there. But what's the broad sketch of what's happening 
Uh, basically, uh, you know, Doug Dawson and I have been uh, kind of partners in crime for a lot of years, and so we were we knew each other uh, in a lot of past lives. And I was stressing to Doug that uh, you know our efficiencies. Uh, and our abilities uh, should afford the attention of investors. And Doug at the same time was uh, talking with some institutional investors that were looking for new growth opportunities. Investors that were traditionally building uh, prisons and schools and leasing them back to states and, and counties uh, were looking for new investments because quite frankly we as a nation uh, aren't building more prisons and all the schools were built 10 or 12 years ago that mm -hmm. are ever going to be built because brick and mortar schools are going by the wayside as a result of data, right? Broadband. Because of our effectiveness and our efficiencies, Doug agreed with me that we'd be a strong candidate to expand our network if there was a private investor group interested in doing so. Uh, we've talked about a number of expansions, but Dallas is the closest community to our existing footprint. It's really about 10 miles away. Uh, we already have a path, a backbone path going through the area, which makes it a lot easier to serve. Uh, we don't have to um, do much head-end expansion uh, to uh, serve that community. And that being that close, we knew that there was a great deal of interest in Dallas and in Minot coming there simply because Literally on a daily basis, we would get calls from uh, Dallas customers wanting to know when we were coming to their community, and we started tracking the volume of that, and it was very substantial. And that's when we started doing some surveys into the community in conjunction with CCG, Doug Dawson's group, and found out that this might be a very viable uh, a partnership to pull together. Uh, so much so that uh, the investor groups took a look at the data that we had pulled together for them, and they actually drove it to fruition. They wanted to do this. They wanted hmm. to do more communities uh, w with us, uh, uh, larger communities, more and larger communities off the bat, but together we decided we're writing a new book. We're going to see how Dallas goes, and if it goes as expected, I suspect we'll be doing some more expansion because sure. really we have unlimited capability as long as we can reach them with fiber. So the question that I like to wrestle with is the unpopular one, which is kind of what happens if things don't work out as expected. So um, who's taken on the risk of this project? First of all, the cities have absolutely no risk. MyNet has a risk in that its name would be dragged through the mud mm -hmm. as a result of uh, a failure in that marketplace but we don't have any financial risk that would could potentially fall in the cities if, if that were the case. But that is not the case. Uh, it's purely the investors. It's no different than investing in Google or investing in G General Motors. So who owns the network in that if I came along and I said, I really like what's going on here, I want to buy it from someone, who do I talk to? Our services or the network? Um, the network. Well, the network is actually uh, owned and being built by American Fiber Optics. Uh, the company that is marketing it is Willamette Valley Fiber. And MyNet is hired to manage that mm -hmm. network and to sell our services as Willamette Valley Fiber. Okay. Eventually, and without getting into details, which I'm not at liberty to, to, to share, uh, part of our agreement is that eventually MyNet will own that network that's being built. Okay. So this is, uh, I mean, I think of it as similar to a capital lease kind of arrangement then? Very similar. Okay. And so then the, the cities of Monmouth and Independence will own the fiber and the services and everything at the end of the term, basically? 
Yes, exactly. Okay. Are you, are you serving rural areas um, outside of Monmouth and Independence? Uh, we've been approached by a number of uh, nearby communities, mostly populations of, I would say, 10,000 or less, maybe 5,000 or less, in one case, a couple of thousand individuals. Because we are uh, government, uh, other governments, other communities are reaching out to us to uh, get advice, direction, uh, guidance, whatever you want to call it, on how do they get broadband into their communities. And we've been working very closely with a number of very small communities. I, I, I think we're coming, getting closer to a solution for them, but we've got a number of political hurdles to, to cross here in Washington, D.C. to make that happen Okay. for those small communities. The formula is very similar to what we're doing in Dallas, only with the city either getting grants or borrowing money to build a network and then hiring someone, perhaps us, perhaps someone like us, that would operate it for the city. Because, again, a city has no business being in the business we're in. They have every, they have every reason and, and should be investing with those who can operate it successfully, mm-hmm. but they themselves should not be the operator. The question I guess I want to wrap up with is how is MyNet different than if um, Verizon had made a priority to build fiber to the home to everyone in uh, Monmouth and Independence? What do you do differently that helps the community in, in ways that go beyond just the technology that's available? There's the obvious ones. Uh, our customer service is local. Our employees live in the towns. We see each other in the grocery store. Um, when you call in to have a, with a technical issue, uh, chances are our technician's going to be in your driveway in about 20 minutes, and you're probably going to know that individual. Uh, but the other is is that uh, we are a partner with the city in creating economic development opportunities for the cities. And I don't know that a Verizon's business plan or a Charter's business plan or a Comcast's business plan would ever afford them to actually go hand-in-hand with the city after uh, seeking uh, economic development opportunities. That does not play out or does not feed Verizon directly, does not feed Comcast directly, et cetera. One of the things that we've been hearing for years is that partnerships are a major way forward. And I'm curious what you're thinking about in the way of of partnerships. Chris, they really are as far as I'm concerned. And and they give us a lot more... uh, uh, opportunity to increase our margins. You know, traditionally, every operator uh, would only use network that they built or they owned. Uh, They would not lease it to anybody, and they wouldn't lease any network from anybody. Uh, If they couldn't build it and own it themselves, they didn't have any interest in it. Uh, We've taken the position over the years that we do a lot of uh, fiber sharing with, with other entities, and it's proven very valuable to us to be able to reach out using someone else's network and having a profitability uh, tool that wouldn't have been at our disposal if we would have had to build it. Now, when you say sharing, yes. I've heard of swaps and I've heard of leases. Is this something different or is it along those lines? Uh, same thing, different terminology. Okay. But as an example, um, you know, I have a a significant number of unused uh, fibers going to one of our POPs, one of our uh, co-location points where we reach out to the Internet as a whole. And uh, one very large, uh, very large commercial entity 
was looking to share a couple, to get access to a number of those fibers. And I was interested in giving them access to a number of those fibers as long as I could get access to a number of fibers that they had that were most, quite frankly, were headed over to Dallas. Okay. <laughs> and we've uh, determined the value of by mile, like you always do, and we found the right agreement by which they could use our network, we could use theirs, and we support one another. And so, um, and so and that you, really does open up a lot of opportunities to do business that we couldn't have done on our own. Right. Um, one of the things that I wanted to make sure to ask you about um, came up in Susan Crawford's new book, um, uh, which is called Fiber, and is terrific. Just came out. She talks about a, a program that I think uh, is sort of it gets to the root of what we want broadband to do for us, which is to give people more opportunities and improve quality of life. And it's teledentistry in your schools. Can you tell us what's going on there? Where we live, we have a very diverse population. In fact, we have a, probably, I think, somewhere between a 38 and a 42% Hispanic population because of the amount of uh, migrant workers that we have working the valley. Uh, but unfortunately... Uh, the income level of, of that demographic is, is not very high. Um, and uh, the, we've worked very closely with Central School District, one of the largest school districts in the state of Oregon, by the way, individual school districts in the state of Oregon, uh, to bring uh, telehealth uh, into reality so that the children uh, would have access to health care. At that time, we weren't able to get an interest from our regional health, traditional health partners. We were able to get an interest in uh, from uh, dental providers, and we actually have a tele-dental clinic set up for uh, Central School District, which to give you, uh, give you uh, an understanding of Central School District, they have a near 68% free or reduced lunch uh, participation. Uh, and these uh, children are able to come in and actually receive dental services via tele, no, no charge. And and this is remarkable. I mean, they both have uh, you know information about whether they have a cavity or not, but they also use a procedure that allows them to have the cavity filled with very little pain, no drilling by uh, people that are able to you know they're they're I don't know exactly what their title is, but they're not full dentists, so there's a lower cost for them to work for the school or work for this program. That's exactly right. And because th this is another thing that a small town, a, a small entity such as ourselves, when we're engaged with the community, uh, we actually sat down with the school district and determined what would be needed in conjunction with the teledentistry uh, program as far as bandwidth. And we decided to build fiber directly into the building that was providing that so that we would have no latency, no bog down, because it is a high bandwidth pig operation. And uh, for, uh, you know, the other providers, the traditional providers in the community, which would be Charter or CenturyLink, getting them to build to that entity probably isn't ever going to happen. Right. Well, then the, the final part of it, which, which I know you're not an expert in, but I'm guessing you, you may have a sense of the impact on the community, is that a lot of these children would have been trying to go to local dentists with Medicaid dollars. A lot of dentists either have a long waiting list or struggle to, to um, deal with Medicaid patients because of the reimbursement rate. And now the, those dentists can use their time to work with patients on more, that have more significant problems. And the kids that just need a routine exam or, or, or basic cavity filling, they don't, they're not sort of in line at the dentist when other people may need to get that spot. 
That's exactly right. And quite frankly, what drove my decision uh, to participate in it uh, and to absorb some of the, the economic costs of, of building it correctly for the school district was that while, yeah, they may be doing it with subsidized, state subsidized dollars, more likely than not, they would get no. They would avoid uh, dental service altogether. Sure, right, and that just and leads to more that problems. That just breaks my heart that children would have to go through life like that. Right. It leads to all kinds of problems. And so this is these are the kinds of outcomes that I love to see. I mean, it's easy to talk about, oh, we have lower prices and we have good local customer service. But here you're giving these these kids much more opportunities and they're going to do better at school not having a toothache every day uh, if they're having a problem. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time uh, while we're here in D.C. for the Next Century Cities um, bipartisan tech event. Um, it's been a it's been a good day. And tomorrow, um, which will have been in the past by the time people listen to this, but you're going to help launch the uh, toolkit for Next Century Cities. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And Chris, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me. All right. Thank you. That was Christopher with Don Patton from the Monmouth Independence Network in Oregon. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power, and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss out on our original research from all our initiatives. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org, and while you're there, take a moment to donate. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons, and thank you for listening to episode 340 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast.